Pastor Daniel, I'm one of the lead pastors here. Um, we were doing a hymn sing today, and I wanted to use this. So this is a newer hymn. I don't know if you've heard, <laughs> heard this one. Uh, I wanted to use a, a piece of this song because there's a line in this song that is specifically what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're in the Apostles' Creed, and so just to kind of recap for you, the Apostles' Creed is not scripture. Uh, it's actually more of a summary of beliefs, and that summary of beliefs is just a mechanism for us to kind of launch off of this, these statements that have been around a long, long time, jump into the Bible, and look at why we believe what we believe. And so we're using this kind of like a launching pad. Um, if you're, if you're uh, skeptical of creeds, think of the creed like the moon and scripture like the sun. The moon doesn't generate any light on its own. It simply reflects light. And so when we look at the moon, we're not really studying light that it produces. It's just a reflection. The Apostles' Creed is just a reflection of beliefs from scripture, summarized out. And uh, they can be very helpful, but they're not scripture. So today we're in week six, and we're going to look at this uh, portion of the Apostles' Creed that says about Jesus, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. Uh, And there's Something that's going to happen that, that I want to make sure that, that we talk about because um, we, we miss this in American church w- way too often. And we underemphasize it and we just kind of, we minimize it and it's to our own detriment and it creates its own problems. And there's a line in this song that caught me like two years ago. And so I listen to this song a lot because there's this line I want you to hear is this. Life ain't been the same since death died. Life ain't been the same since death died. Did you catch that? Life ain't been the same since death died. There's something that happened on the cross at the crucifixion because of the resurrection that changed everything, everything. And uh, unfortunately, I think one of the most uh, one of the most insidious parts of sin, one of the sneakiest, uh, most detrimental parts of sin, is that in this Christian walk. Uh, particularly how we've been told that it's supposed to work here in America, uh, is that, that your life after you meet Jesus is kind of more or less the same as it was before you met Jesus. And that is fundamentally wrong. That is not what the Bible says. That is not what is described in Scripture. That's only what's described oftentimes in American church culture. And I just want to tell you it's wrong. It's completely wrong. It's missing the entire point. So, so listen to me. Uh, a life after you meet Jesus is not like your life before plus a little sprinkle of Jesus. It's not like, oh, we didn't have enough salt, so let's put a little, oh, now it's okay because we sprinkled a little Jesus dust on it. That's not life. Life is so fundamentally different because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of what he will do inside of us that it should look nothing like it did before. And and where we get into a trap is that we begin to use logic and rationale um, and and habits and other things and behavior that we learned before Jesus and we try to apply them to life after Jesus and then we wonder why it's not working. And we go, man, I don't know about this Christian life, man. And And I look at it and go, that's not the Christian life. That doesn't look anything like it. 
And so we're going to look at what happened on the cross specifically. We're going to look at what happened when Jesus descended to hell and rose again in three days. And we're going to look at why it is the single most important point in all of human history. And now hopefully you're going to leave here today and you're going to remember one fundamental thing. Life ain't been the same since death died. If you remember that and can begin working through what the application of that looks like over the course of the next week or two weeks, it will make a massive difference in your walk with the Lord and in the way in which you see God's hand on your life. Now, you cannot overemphasize the resurrection. You can underemphasize it. You can minimize it. You can miss portions of it, but you can't overemphasize it. You can't talk about it too much. We can talk about it every single Sunday that you came into church. We could go back and talk about the resurrection. In fact, there have been times in history where that's all really they talked about every single week and it still wouldn't be enough. So we're going to talk about it. Last week, Pastor Vance covered uh, the death of Jesus on the cross. But I want to look at this, um, this, this, this fundamental sort of three-day period where Jesus dies on the cross, is buried and resurrected, and, and I want to look at why it changed everything for us. So there are three, three points in history that I would say are the, the three single most important. These three are the most important things that have happened in all of human history, and guess what? All three of them actually involve sin. The, the first point was when sin entered the world. So the day sin entered the world, which is in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve made some really poor choices, we'll talk about that in a minute, that was the first most important, impactful day in the history of humanity. The second will come thousands of years later, the day that Jesus defeats sin, which is what we're going to talk about today. And the third has not come yet, but someday Jesus will come back to judge us, the living and the dead, because of sin. Those are the three most fundamental points in all of human history. And part of why we uh, underestimate or, or we minimize what happened on the cross is that we actually misunderstand sin and what it is by its very nature. And, and that's probably because if you've, if you've grown up in American church, uh, we say a lot of weird things about sin that aren't really true. And at times we even glamorize it, which, man, you'll never see that happen in the Bible because they understand how much of a predator sin is. But, you know, we'll laugh and call Vegas Sin City like it's really funny, but, but there's no laughing about sin in the Bible because they have a recognition of what it actually is. So you're, what you're going to see is that at the moment that Adam and Eve make this choice in the Garden of Eden, when sin enters the world, it infects us it, it, like, like cancer, like, like in, ingesting poison that you can't get rid of. At, at the point that happens, we see both physical and spiritual death enter into the world, and there is really no escape. We've created a new inevitability from that point on in which every life ends in death. And there's no escaping it. And it's, it's not an abstract thing, right? So part of the reason that it, I think it's difficult for you and I to grasp like, the severity of sin is that we were born into it. It's always been with us. It's so close that it's difficult to actually get a perspective on, on what it is. Let's see if I can give you an example. We have times in, in human history in which a people group has been enslaved for generations. In fact, they've been enslaved for so long that at the point that they're liberated from slavery, they actually don't know what to do. Like they don't know what life would look like not enslaved. 
If we go back even to American history, um, when we abolished slavery, there were just swaths of people that actually were like, what now? If we go back to the Bible and when you turn to Exodus, you're going to find this point where the Israelites have been in generations of slavery to the Egyptians and they get out into the desert and like the, literally the first thing that bad that happens, they're like, yeah, let's go back to slavery. We don't need this freedom thing. Oh, that's scary. Let's just go back where these people were abusing us and taking advantage of us and we had no freedom and we had no liberty and everything was terrible because it's better than the unknown. And, and, and we do this with sin. Okay, I, I want you to understand sin is killing us and yet oftentimes we cling to it because of its familiarity. Sin, you can hear me use sin and death synonymously in this sermon. And, and the reason why is because death did not exist in this universe until sin entered the world. And we actually see that in scripture. This isn't just my opinion. Romans 5.12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin is death. It caused death, it brought death in, it created death, and there was no such thing as death until sin came into the world. Ephesians 2.1 says this. And that's talking about you and I after sin entered the world. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin. So the death that entered into this world was not just a physical death, that we're all going to die, we are. It's a spiritual death. So if you go back to the Garden of Eden, when, when, when God creates man for himself, they're doing what in the garden? They're walking and talking and in relationship in the garden. So there, it's like just some homies chilling, like Jesus and his homeboys, right? Walking around the garden. Everything's great. Everything's peaceful. Everything's perfect. We're having conversations. We're just chatting it up. There's no death. There's no destruction. There's no chaos. There's no toxicity. It's, it's wonderful. But when death enters, it's not just that physically we'll die. It is now a separation from God. And so you and I, according to Ephesians 2.1, are now born spiritually dead, apart from God, unable to consider spiritual things because of sin. Dead to the very relationship you were created for. What do you think about this? Dead for the very relationship you chose, you were created for one purpose, which is relationship for God, and you're born dead to that purpose. I don't know if you, 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 this is sinking in, but I want you to imagine any little widget you want to. Let's say a pencil. A pencil exists for one reason. It's to write things down. A pencil that cannot write, pretty useless. If you ever have a marker and it dries out, what do you do with it? What? Why? Because it's useless. It's created for a purpose that it cannot fulfill. So when sin enters the world, the very reason that we exist, the very reason that we were created now no longer is even a possibility and, and it's not anything that you and I can achieve and therefore we're dead in our sins and our trespasses and useless for the very reason we were created. Sin Brings death. Now, I'm just going to give you a very simple definition of sin. You could really get into all the different words that are used in the Old Testament and New Testament for sin, but I think this will be simpler. Sin is anything contrary to God's character and will, okay? So I don't want you to think about, let me make a big list of what I think are sins. That's not my point, okay? I, don't even go there. Here's God. 
Okay, he's not this small, but just go with it. Here's God. Everything in his will and his character and his purpose is perfect. When I say perfect, I mean contentment, satisfaction, peace. It works the way it was intended to work. Perfect. And everything outside of that is sin. Do you catch what I'm saying? So, so don't think of sin as like these, these bad things that I want to do that God won't let me do. Huh? I'll tell you why not to do that in a minute, Eve. But sin is anything outside of God's character and his will. Why? Because his will and his character is perfect. Therefore, if you're outside of his will, it's imperfect, meaning it's broken and it's distorted. And so what happens? You go back to the Garden of Eden and everything is perfect. Think about this. In in the Garden of Eden, Adam had work and it was perfect. Can you imagine work perfect? I can't. I can't, because work is always distorted. There's something, oh, it's, you're always grinding against it, right? Like, even when you think you have a good day, you have a bad day, right? Work was perfect. Relationships were perfect. The earth was perfect. I actually heard a theologian say that uh, in heaven, he's not even sure we're going to need a lot of the organs that we have. Like, we don't know what our body's going to look like, right? But a lot of our organs are actually for filtering out all the crazy, toxic things in this world, <laughs> And someday it's going to be perfect and those things won't even exist, so why do I even need a liver? It's a good point. Maybe all the energy that my liver puts into uh, cleansing my blood will go to glorifying God and I'll just be that much more happy to see God. I don't know. I lost my place because I started talking about a liver. Okay. So Adam and Eve, everything's perfect. And here's the sin, okay? I want you to catch this because it's a sin you and I make all the time. I want you to see this. Sin enters the world when Eve and Adam decide that there is a better way to live life if they could just get outside of God's design. Do you, do you see that? Good. L- listen, I know it's so easy to blame Adam and Eve. And when we get to heaven, we're all gonna be like, bruh, Really? <laughs> But it's not like you and I have ever decided that life would be better if we just had control of it and God, you know, like, I, if it was my plan, if you, you know, I wrote you a, a proposal about how I, you know, should probably be making more money and if you would bless me and if I could get, right? You've never had plans that you thought God didn't, wasn't reading, right? No, no? You're always perfectly trusting of God's plans? You guys are a bunch of liars. It's a very heart of sin, at the original sin, in the very beginning, it was the idea that somehow life outside of God's design would be better than life inside God's design. That maybe if I was God and he wasn't God, things would be better. Have you ever tried to be God of your own life? How's that going, Turbo? I'll tell you, it went for me really bad. That's at the core. So when we think of sin, anything outside of the character and purpose of God is cancer, it's toxic, it's poison, it leads to death. In fact, that decision in the garden led to death entering the world. Your decisions outside of God's will lead to death. So sin enters into the world all the way back in Genesis 3, and for thousands of years, it brings death and chaos and brokenness. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, I lost count of how many people got slaughtered in the Old Testament. It's a bloodbath. Makes Game of Thrones look like a kid's show. It's horrible. Pillaging, rape, destruction, 
incest, murder. I mean, it's just, it's awful for thousands of years. Death, 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 until one day Jesus comes back to fix it. Every life since that moment in the garden has been covered in a cloud of inevitability that death is coming for you. Death is coming for you. The inescapable reality of this life, you will die. You will die. Only two things, you've heard this, there are only two things certain in this world, death and taxes. Death and taxes, they're coming. You live in California, so that's like extrapolated. No hope, no relationship with God, spiritually dead, no peace until the point Jesus comes to fix it. And that is the crucial turning point in all of human history because everything changes right there. And at that moment, life ain't been the same since death died. Death dies and nothing is ever the same again. Let me read it to you. The day that death died. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, so they put him up on the cross, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So what was he crucified for? Blasphemy for calling himself God. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, so they're ridiculing, mocking him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down off that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. You catch that? There's three hours in the middle of the day of darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, e, uh, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice. We know in another gospel, he actually says, it is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, what happens next after Jesus dies? Catch this. So first of all, it's dark in the middle of the day. Jesus has just yielded up his spirit and died. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So just, just so you, don't, you, know, you know what that means, um, we're not talking about a small curtain like on the side of your window here. There is a massive curtain from floor to ceiling in the temple that separates the holy of holy place where no one but the high priest is allowed to go once a year after he's consecrated. It is the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant is. No one is allowed in that space and, except the, the high priest after consecration because God is so holy that he can't have your presence around and that curtain that separates God from man tears from top to bottom when Jesus dies representing access to the Father. 
The earth shook earthquakes. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that means dead, were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, so now we're talking about Romans, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. In 1984, Oxford scientists went back and began to pull historical data from different regions, not just around the Middle East, but all around that continent and Northern Africa, and actually were able to find uh, and, and, and uh, <clears throat> point to a single day in history, which is Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, as to the day of the crucifixion of Jesus. And you're going, how do they know exactly the day? Well, it turns out that when you have a giant earthquake, people talk about it. And there are records of not only a massive earthquake that took place in the Middle East and were felt all around the areas around Jerusalem, but as far away as North Africa and Syria, there are uh, historical references, extra biblical, outside scripture from people not even in the area about the darkness that covered the earth in the middle of the day. Because wouldn't you know it, but a solar eclipse is kind of a big deal. And they found a historical reference for a sandstorm that was so severe on that exact day of the solar eclipse that the sun was covered up so substantially you couldn't see the sky for hours on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. So listen, if if you don't believe in this whole Jesus mumbo jumbo because we're all a bunch of crazy anti-scientist people, I just want you to hear this. We're not anti-science. It's just the science has yet to catch up to all of the details of the Bible. The more study we do, the more Bible gets validated. I don't have a problem with science. I just know who created the subject. Amen? You know, Jesus never failed a biology test. You realize that, right? Because he wrote the subject. Let's keep going. Verse 55. So it's so substantial, the sky growing dark, earthquakes splitting rocks, the temple curtain tearing in two, that Roman centurions, whose job it is to execute people on crosses, they're professionals at this, stand in awe and admit, truly, this is the Son of God. Verse 55, there, are, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mothers of the sons of Zebedee. 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Little did they know. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Because now that there's guards, it's clearly going to be too much for Jesus. Verse 28. 
Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. His feet. You're like, why is that a big deal? Well, because Jesus wasn't a vision. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit animal. He was a, this is a bodily resurrection. Jesus in the flesh, standing before them. They can hold him. They can touch his scars. They can worship him. They can grab his feet. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. In the Apostles' Creed, the, the section that we're reading, uh, it says, he descended into hell and three days later he rose again. The original version of the Apostles' Creed uh, back in the second or third century when this was written did not have the phrase he descended into hell. That actually wasn't added for about 200 years or so. Um, and that's still a little bit controversial in circles. And so there's actually some circles uh, that as they recite the Apostles' Creed, refused to recite that line because, you know, descended to hell. The Bible doesn't actually say that he descended into hell at all. Uh, so what does it mean that he descended into hell? I'm, I'm going to try to explain some of that controversy and why we're okay saying that statement uh, and why it's in the creed and why it, it matters. And, and there's a little bit of mystery here, and that's okay too. Remember that before we get to verse 39, which is where we started our reading, Jesus has already been beaten savagely, uh, a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He's been blindfolded and struck in the face. Uh, he's been whipped. He has been absolutely uh, tortured. Uh, beaten to such a bloody mess that he was probably close to unrecognizable. And, and the reason it's important to remind you of that is, is we don't need the PG version of Jesus. Like we don't need the uh, you know, parentally safe version of Jesus. Jesus had to pay for our sins. Our sins were serious. They demanded a verdict and a punishment and Jesus took that upon himself. It wasn't vanilla. It wasn't cute. It wasn't a Disney movie. It was savage. It was grotesque because there's a real cost to sin. Don't forget that. Don't turn your face away from Jesus beaten and bloodied on your behalf. He's been tortured. He's been ridiculed. He's been mocked. And then he's taken to the cross. What happens on the cross? There's three things that I want uh, to talk about that the Bible says happened on the cross that are important for us to realize about the cross before we get to the resurrection. The first is this. Number one, Jesus bears the weight for our sin. The weight. He bears the weight for it. First Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It is by the very wounds, by that very grotesque nature of that beating and being pierced in his side by a spear and hanging on a cross, it is by those very wounds, by those very stripes that we are healed. He bears the weight for our sin. The agony, the physical torture, and the emotional torture he took on willingly and voluntarily for us. 
The second thing, not only does he bear the weight of our sin, but he paid the price for our sin. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, for you were bought with a price, the very blood of Jesus, so glorify God in your body. Why is there a price? I, I, every once in a while I get in a conversation where people don't understand why Jesus had to die. Understand that God is a just God. He's a God of justice. The God in the Old Testament was not any different than the God in the New Testament. Every once in a while people say, well, I like the God in the New Testament. It's the same God. Why does it look different? Because the justice that's being demanded in the Old Testament is paid for in the New Testament. But there must be justice. Let me see if I can explain why. Um, okay. Every once in a while, you, you, you get news. Maybe you see it on, on a news article or something, or you see it on the news, you, well, you see it on Twitter or whatever. You, you see just this, just a horrible story, right? Like a, a child being abused by parents. I think, I think locally, uh, there was someone just convicted or something of like torturing and killing their two adopted kids or something, right? Is that right? I think it's right. And it's just one of those things where like, it's hard not to read that and get pretty passionate. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like that demands justice. Like that, that those individuals would be allowed to do that to innocent kids and it go unpunished is, it would be just a travesty that demands justice. Our sin demands justice. My sin demands justice because God is a just God. So he doesn't take that sin and sweep it under the rug. In the same way, you wouldn't allow criminals to do that to children and sweep it under the rug. You'd say, no, that's not right. That's God, a just God. He looks at you, he looks at me, he looks at every person who has sinned, who has done those things outside of his will. And he says, that demands justice. Someone has to pay the price. Is it gonna be you? And Jesus said, it'll be me. So Jesus goes to the cross to pay the price for our sin because God demands justice, because he's a good God, because he's a just God. And thirdly, he bears the weight for our sin, he pays the price for our sin. And then in some, some sense, and there's a little bit of mystery to this, but in some sense, Jesus on the cross is separated from God. And I'm gonna show you this in the Bible. Jesus is separated from God. And we don't know the, the full extent of how this happens or exactly how, because it, it's, it's a bit mind-boggling. Um, and we probably won't know until we get to heaven and we get to ask. But, but watch what happens in Matthew 27, 46. In Matthew 27, 46, it says this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a direct quote from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is about a compassionate king who is pierced on his hands and his feet, encircled by evildoers and crying out for God. Psalm 22.1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now there's some 
Just phenomenal parallels that are going to happen here. This psalm written by King David is uh, going to be referenced again by Peter at the Pentecost in, in just a little while. We're going to look at that. Uh, Peter puts these, these puzzle pieces together later. He doesn't right here. But Jesus, even as he's being ridiculed, even as these, these religious leaders are sitting there mocking him and laughing at him and ridiculing him after he's been beaten and he's been tortured, his, one of his final statements is to try to wake them up from their stupor. And he quotes Psalm 22, attempting to just, hey, don't you get it? I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm here to save you. Psalm 22 is about a compassionate king being put to death, crying out for God. He cries out for God. So even in the midst of being killed by his accusers and evildoers, Jesus has pity on them and tries to wake them from their ignorance. And they don't get it, right? I mean, what's their response? Is he calling Elijah? Like the, you know. This is the only time in, in the record we have of Jesus that he refers to God instead of calling him father. So all the other times we see him call God Father, 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 Father. When he, when he speaks, to Jesus, well, speaks to God, he calls him Father. This is the one time in Jesus' life he no longer calls him Father. He calls him God. Why? Why? Why is he suddenly not Father and he's God? There is a, there's something that happens on the cross when Jesus absorbs the sins of the world in which God turns his, his face there is some type of separation between God and Jesus. And we don't know particularly what that means or how that would even be possible because in the Trinity, Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are one. They are distinct and yet they are one. And yet somehow there is this tearing of the presence and relationship of God and Jesus that happens on the cross in which Jesus, as he absorbs the sin and the weight of our sin, also feels the separation of relationship from God. And, and, and when we say he descended into hell, what metaphorically is absolutely true is that he begins to experience an emptiness because of a lack of relationship with God. And what is hell? If you read what hell is, it is separation from God. It is a place without God for eternity. And so what Jesus is experiencing on the cross is bearing the weight of sin and being separated from God. What is hell? Bearing the result of our sin and being separated from God. That's why it can be absolutely okay with the term he descended into hell, whether he physically descended into hell or he simply experienced hell on the cross. Now, there's some extra biblical theories that maybe Jesus did actually go down to Hades because we have some stuff in first Peter about how he releases captives. And there's a number of people that were waiting that he releases. We don't, it's very vague. We're not exactly sure what that means or in what context that happens. I'll talk about one of the theories in a minute. They're fun. I don't know that they're super important. Someday we'll ask Jesus. It's that. And like, tell me about the dinosaurs. Cause I'm very curious, right? <laughs> So we said, what happened on the cross? Three things. Jesus bears the weight for our sins. Jesus pays the price for our sins. Jesus is separated in some sense from the presence of God. And then fourth, here's the big thing. This is, this is what matters. This is where God's perfect justice is still at play in the midst of what's happening on the cross and in death. When Jesus dies, having committed no sin, it is the greatest injustice in human history. Right? 
We, took, we covered this. Sin only exists, I mean, death only exists because of sin. Death only entered the world because of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. For the wages of sin is death. Jesus just died, but he never sinned. God is a just God. We have a problem. This equation doesn't work. If death was reserved for those who were disobedient to God's will or character, and Jesus isn't, then how can he die? If we serve a God of justice, and Jesus is the only person ever in the history of humanity to not deserve death, and he died, we have an injustice. Now, the wonderful thing is, the Apostle Peter is going to see this. He was there, right? He sees Jesus after he's resurrected. And this is the primary point that he has that he makes in his first sermon at Pentecost. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. For those of you that aren't familiar with what happens in the Bible, uh, Jesus uh, um, is resurrected. He begins to appear in some different places in the upper room. He, he appears on the road to... Uh, uh, on the road with some journeyers and he explains some things. He, he's at uh, the beach. He, he actually cooks breakfast for his apostles. So over the course of a little while, he's appeared to over 500 different people and he's appeared back to the apostles and he's given them the commission. You know, they're supposed to go spread the gospel and he tells them, wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit. They wait 40 days. The Holy Spirit descends. And so now the apostles, they go out in the middle of this giant festival where there's just thousands of people that have congregated in Jerusalem for a festival, a lot of whom speak different languages. And then Peter starts off with this just absolutely rocking sermon out of the middle of nowhere. And he's speaking in one language, but everyone in their own language can actually hear what he's saying, which is actually quite miraculous. Um, and he's, he's preaching the very first sermon about the resurrected Jesus. And he starts it off with like, hey, everyone, listen, I'm not drunk, it's too early in the morning, which is a terrible way to start a sermon. Uh, but it works anyways for him. And he's, he's preaching, right? And then I want you to hear what the primary point of his sermon is. At Pentecost, in which thousands of men are saved. It's this, Acts 22, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death can't hold him. Death can't hold Jesus because he didn't earn it. Death, the greatest human fear, the penultimate finish of sin, the only two things in this life that are certain, death and taxes, death can't hold him. Death can't hold Jesus. Now Peter's going to go on in this sermon, and, he, and he's going to make an allusion to why Psalm 22 from David is actually part of this. Listen to what he says, because why would David, King David, who, who died, who was never on a cross, who never had his hands and feet, pierced, who was never encircled by his enemies in such a fashion, why would, why would David write Psalm 22? Peter's going to explain it in, in his sermon, in Pentecost. 
Acts 2, 29-32, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, King David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What is he saying? Hey, hey that guy David, he may have been great, but when he died, he stayed dead. When you die, you stay, I mean, like, yeah, he might have been great, but you know what he didn't do? Raise himself from the dead. Verse 30, he's going to call David a prophet because Psalm 22 is a prophecy about Jesus. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, would be, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, Jesus, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What is he saying? Death tried but he couldn't hold Jesus. You guys, you guys like a good boss fight? You know, in a movie? Like you've been waiting all movie for like, like, like the, the arch villain and the, and the hero to, to like have, a, have one of those epic battles? What if you're waiting for thousands of years? Because see, the thing that you need to understand is it's not just that Jesus is more powerful than you. I think we can all admit that. It's that sin's more powerful than you too. And we don't want to admit that. But when we talk about an epic fight of death versus Jesus, what I'm trying to explain to you is both of those powers are more powerful than you are. And so you needed Jesus to win that fight because you sure as heck weren't going to do it. And, and, and when we look at uh, two things more powerful than us, death and Jesus, I'm just trying to tell you Jesus was top two and he ain't two. He was going to win that fight. And we needed him to win that fight. In the 14th century, there was an Italian poet named Dante. He's probably the most uh, famous uh, literary personality in all of Italian history. Uh, he wrote a great divine comedy that is probably the uh, most epic Italian piece of literature that's ever been written in history, uh, widely considered the most important author and most important piece. And that divine comedy is called Dante's Inferno. And it's essentially a mythological view of a man named Virgil leading Dante, who is the main character, uh, down through these, uh, a journey through hell. And hell, in this case, in this myth, has these nine circles. It starts wide and it goes down and each circle uh, is dedicated to people that are in hell for different reasons. And each of those reasons actually is kind of progressively worse and more evil as you go down into the bottom of the pit of hell. And each penalty of punishment that the people in that sort of ring of hell are experiencing is representative of whatever their sin was. And so it kind of matches. And so it's very uh, imaginative, a lot of creativity as, it, as these guys journey down and he records this, this crazy imaginative journey all the way down through hell until he gets to the seventh ring of hell. The seventh ring of hell in Dante's Inferno is dedicated to blasphemers, people that, that spoke uh, offensively in reference to God. And when he gets to the seventh layer, the seventh ring of hell, it's destroyed, it's rubble, and they're crawling their way over it. And Virgil is explaining to Dante, he's like, what happened here? And he goes, look over here at the, at the wall of the ring that's completely destroyed, and there's chains, and they're on the ground. And he goes, what is that? And he goes, that's where they tried to chain up Jesus. But death couldn't hold him. So even a 14th century Italian pro uh, poet knew 
the truth of the universe and the most important milestone in human history was the day Jesus defeated death. Amen? Life ain't been the same since death died. Still true. Now, here's where I want you to understand the gravity of why this continues to be something that we talk about. I I started the sermon by explaining that you and I have this tendency to uh, underestimate what happened when Jesus conquered sin. And, and And I... I think that that's primarily the case because you and I are wonderful liars. No? Okay, listen. No one will ever lie to you as well as you. Good. You don't understand? Like, like I could, we could make ribbons and I could hand out number one liar to me and it would be true if I gave you all one. Because no one lies to you like you do. No one can can convince you of things that aren't true like you can. Let me split this. I want to talk to you if you you, you, you just don't believe this Jesus thing is is for you. I want to talk to you first. It applies to both of us. But listen, if you you look at this Jesus thing skeptically and you're just like, "Mm, you know, you're all kind of weird. First of all, that's true. I'm not debating whether or not we're weird. We're very weird. But we're weird for a reason. Okay? If we've put our faith in Jesus and you look at that and think that's weird, you just need to understand I was completely dead in my sin when Jesus woke me up. I, I, I was spiritually dead. And when Jesus woke me up, the, the, one of the first things that happened when, 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 when Jesus saves you from your sin is he actually allows you for the first time maybe to clearly see what's been killing you. And up until then, because you're spiritually dead and you don't really consider spiritual things, you just lie to yourself. Have you seen that meme? It's a Scooby-Doo meme where Fred is going to unmask the villain at the end and he goes, let's, see who's, let's finally see who's behind all this chaos. And he yanks the hood off and it's him. When Jesus saved me, it's like him going, all right, Daniel, let's finally show you who's responsible for all this chaos in your life. Oh, it's me. It's me. When Jesus saves you, you finally come to an intellectual and a heart understanding that what is at the heart of my dysfunction and despair and discontentment and dissatisfaction in life is actually me. And when you see it, and when he pulls you out of it, nothing's the same again. Amen? Amen. Nothing's... Life ain't been the same since death died. Right? Nothing's the same. All of a sudden, it's like, oh. Let me explain. Let me explain. In fact, let's let the Bible explain. In Ephesians 2, I read you verse 1 earlier. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, the Bible is going to explain what it looks like to you once Jesus has come, he has resurrected, he has pulled you, saved you from your sin, taken you out of the grave, and how life should never be lived. It's completely and fundamentally different. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world. Because every moment of human history since Genesis 3, the course of this world has been death. It is the inevitable result of sin. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, in case you're not aware. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. That word all in Greek, if you translate that to English, it means all, everybody. Nobody is exempt. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the two most powerful words in the Bible, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you don't buy into this Jesus mumbo jumbo, your sin is killing you and you can't escape it and you can't do anything about it. And I don't care what kind of self-help book or what YouTube video you watch, or if it's an Instagram reel, you're still dead. Unless Jesus steps in. And listen to me, if, if you are beginning to get a realization of how hopeless this life is, and how, it's just that weird feeling when you come to Christ that man, Jesus is just pulling at you and all of a sudden you're considering spiritual things and you're wondering why you're asking questions that you've never asked before. Let me just help you. You didn't stumble upon new logic. God is saving you. He is pulling you out of the grave. Let, let me tell you, I know that he's doing it and you're not doing it. Here's why. Dead people don't consider things. They're dead. No one in the grave goes, you know what? I should start thinking about. You're dead. If you're thinking about spiritual things, it's because God has already started a process in you. And you can do one of two things. You can turn and repent, or you can run and turn and repent later. I would do it now. He's got long legs. You're just going to die tired. You don't thwart God's purposes. If him being rich in mercy has pulled you from the grave, stop fighting. He's trying to give you a life of contentment and satisfaction. And you keep running back to slavery. If you, I, I, will, I will get down on my knees and plead with you, if it will help. And I'll just tell you, he loves you. He died for you. the gift of mercy that God has for you is unparalleled by anything you have ever experienced in this sinful human world. He doesn't ask you to do anything. He asks you merely to respond to what he's already doing. Now, if you're a believer, I, I, I know a lot of people stuck right here. I wanna talk to you about where you're stuck because I get stuck there and I've been stuck there and I've just walked through this too many times. And it's this, it's this idea 
That even though life should be different because we've met Jesus and we've, we, we've begun to experience the grace that, that is his calling and what a, what a pursuit of God looks like and what a life outside of slavery to sin looks like and all of a sudden the, 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 the places where I had no power over sin and I had no real choice and I just found myself back in the depths again and again, all of a sudden I do have power because I have his spirit in me and I, and I actually can walk with him and here's what happens is somehow we walk back to life before Jesus and we start using the same secular worldly criteria to live life as if it led to something other than death. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It's just slavery. It's always been slavery. And the Bible speaks to how we're to get about living in this new mindset in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. I want to read it to you. It says this. If then, okay, he's talking to you. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's you and me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? Okay, listen, Jesus, Jesus experienced hell so that you and I could walk in freedom. Jesus, Jesus did not experience hell so that you and I could be raised from the dead and then go back to slavery. That's wild, guys. Like The formula that led to nothing but death. You're telling me you want to go back to that formula and think it's going to work out this time. Man, I'm dumb, but I ain't that dumb. And neither are you. It never led to anything other than death. So, so what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we don't deal with anxiety in our life like someone who doesn't have Jesus because we already know that the end has already been written and we have confidence in the end. So, so, so why would I have anxiety like someone that doesn't know Jesus? Why would, I, why would I look at circumstances and go, that may not work out? I already know it's gonna work out. It's like you watch the end of the movie and then you rewound it and you're like, I wonder what it's gonna end like. Are you kidding? You watch the end already. How are you in doubt? You're not. So stop living like it's in doubt. When we face trials and suffering in our life, we don't face them the same way someone does who doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because we're not dead anymore. We're not enslaved anymore. When I'm making decisions in my life, now, as someone that Jesus has saved, I don't use the same logic. I don't use the same rationale. I don't set the same priorities. Why would I do that? Why would I choose the same method as someone who's dead? Literally, you'd be like, uh, you know, hey, what, what kind of fitness plan are you on? Oh, I'm on that corpse's fitness plan. Like, what? That didn't work out for him, did it? He's dead. And we do this, this is the trick, this is the problem in American church all the time, is that we know Christ, we know peace, we know contentment, and then the first time the waves start to get choppy around the boat, we think, I'll run back to slavery, it'll be great. We laugh at them in Exodus, right? <laughs> Morons. And then we do it. Jesus did not crawl up on the cross to redeem you, to buy you with the price so you could live a life like a slave. So stop it. 
That's why, this is why you have to set your mind and renew your mind on the things of God because the world that we live in, the distorted, fallen, broken world is gonna pull you back to this mindset and this lifestyle of death. And they're gonna tell you, here's how you make decisions. And you have to know because you've been risen from death in Christ that that is bull. You gotta be mean about it, but you don't gotta participate in it. Do you know what I'm saying? You have people, not what we would call wise counsel, some side of counsel, that will tell you to live life like a dead person. And you have to be reminded by setting your eyes back on Christ that that's not who we are anymore. That's not our identity. That's not the end of our story. That, that, that's not who we are anymore. Let, let me tell you where this matters, okay? Believer, listen. Conviction is not a bad thing. See, conviction in someone that doesn't know Jesus is actually guilt. They don't even have conviction. It's just awfulness. It's condemnation. But conviction for the believer is not condemnation. It's not guilt. Conviction is like, uh, you ever been driving on the freeway and you start to doze off? Like, I've never done that. But um, you start to doze off and, and you go off the road and they have those little bumps. He's like, right? And you wake up. No, no one. Literally no one else. Golly, you guys. Is that hot? Okay. That's conviction in the life of a believer. That's what the Holy Spirit does is you start to get off the rails and, and decide to walk back into that life of death and put your hands back on horrible decision-making and horrible identity, and the Holy Spirit's like... Duh, 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 right? And that's good. That's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to turn. When you feel that when you're driving, you don't go, yay, and go off the road. You go, oh, no, and you get back in the lane. But in church, we've taught you how you should cover that up and act like everything's okay. Just drive right off the road as long as you don't admit any fault. What? No. No conviction is for you to go, oh, and turn in repentance. And if you think, man, uh, conviction and repentance sound like uh, kind of humbling. Yes. Because your ego will kill you. That's all it wants to do is kill you. Conviction and repentance are the common everyday experiences of the Christian life to keep you on the road to life and keep you out of ditches. So believer, how do we put our hands around this idea that everything about life changed the day the death died? We wake up every single morning, setting our minds on the things above, realizing that we're going to reject the reasoning of a fallen, dark, broken, dysfunctional, deathly, cancerous, toxic world. And we're gonna open our hearts and our minds up to the work that Christ is doing in us and through us, which will mean a death to self, it means stomping on my ego, and embracing the work that Jesus did, the finished work that Jesus did on the cross. Because if you remember nothing else today, you remember. Life ain't been the same since death died. Life ain't been the same since death died. It was never meant to be the same for you. You don't need to longingly look back at a life before Jesus and think that somehow that's going to lead to something better than death, because it's not. 
In just a moment, our uh, elders and our prayer team are gonna come up. Uh, we wanna pray for you. We wanna pray for you if you are feeling conviction. We wanna pray for you if you're just feeling down and you need encouragement. We wanna pray for you if you've never put your faith in the Lord and you wanna know what it looks like to walk with him. We wanna pray for you. So I'm going to pray over this service. Our guys are gonna get up here and we're just going to wait as you respond and as we can encourage you through prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you sent your son to bear the weight of our sin and pay the price, God, to experience hell for our redemption in our life. God, help us to walk in this life, not looking back at a life of slavery, but looking forward in an eternal promise to sit at your side. God, help us to be uh, fully bought into this life with you not stuck in our old habits and our old hangups, God, in our own patterns, um, but fully embracing a life, serving you, loving you, and walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You move as the Lord leads you guys.